Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be? Hey y'all, this is Shane and I am so glad you could join me for the show. I've been in a series of shows around themes from my newest book, Rethinking Life. And the subtitle uh, is Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. Uh, this new book's been a, a project a couple of years in the making, really uh, about what it truly means to be a champion for life, um, not, you know, to be pro-life from womb to tomb, not just to be pro-birth and uh, only care about the issue of abortion, but to care about ending the death penalty, gun violence, welcoming immigrants, uh, the environmental crisis, war and militarism, all of these things that are about people's dignity and life and you know recognizing every person being made in the image of god so uh if you don't have a copy you can get it pretty much everywhere if you order it from our website uh it supports the work here in our neighborhood so you can go to uh the simple way.org and you can order that book but before i get into this this um this theme of, of the, the chapter that we're on, I wanted to say it's been a wild week, y'all. One of the things that happened is uh, our brother and, and my friend, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, the spiritual leader of the Anglican Communion, which is like 85 million Christians around the world. Uh, as some of you know, he came to visit us in Philly and hang out for a few days, stayed here in our house. But one of the things that we did was we gave Justin a cross that we made from the barrel of a gun. And he wanted to take that to uh, Pope Francis and he delivered it. And get this, we got this beautiful picture of uh, Justin handing the cross to uh, to Pope Francis. But it was right before the feast of St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, who the Pope's, you know, that's the Pope's namesake. Uh, he died on October 3rd. I think it was 1226 in the 13th century. Uh, he passed away. And so the church remembers him on October 4th. So that, that, that was great timing. And uh, it, it, it was a beautiful thing. I, I do think, you know, at some point, like to get over there to Rome, see, uh, you know, Vatican City, visit Pope Francis, love that brother. Um, but the other thing that we saw this week um, on a little bit more somber note is uh, our country carried out another execution. And um, this one, you know, every execution that is being that it takes place in the United States, we are holding vigils, prayer vigils and protests on the ground uh, with our partners at Death Penalty Action. And this was uh, the Michael Zach, who was 
executed in Florida is the 19th execution that has happened this year, 2023, in the United States. He's the sixth person to be executed uh, in Florida in that state. And I think there's, there's just a handful of states that are still carrying out executions uh, in the United States. And almost every year, a new state abolishes the death penalty. But here's what's so heartbreaking. It is It is the states where Christians are in leadership, Christian governors, Christian legislators, those are the states that continue to hold on to the death penalty. Uh, I often say that the Bible belt is the death belt in our country, and um, that's uh, where executions are taking place. And it's heart-wrenching, right, that the, the death penalty would not stand a chance in America without the support of Christians. So that's why we need to keep raising our voices. We need to um, uh, continue to build a movement that is for life on uh, the issue of capital punishment, too. But Michael, uh, the, the, the man that was executed, um, first of all, did something horrific. And a lot of times there's questions of innocence. Did the person really do the crime? Uh, our government has a terrible track record for getting it wrong uh, and executing people who are innocent. Um, and yet in this case, we know that uh, a terrible crime was committed by Michael and he has never defended what he did. Um, but the question, you know, in, in this case becomes, um, aren't we all more than the worst thing that we've ever done? Doesn't God's grace uh, and mercy have a role to play in all this? And, and certainly murder should have consequences. To be against the death penalty is not to be against justice. Um, and we start all of our vigils uh, as the executions are carried out by remembering the victims first. And so we we remembered the the um, victims in this case. But I, I want to read you um, Michael's statement, his final statement, his last words before he was executed. They're really powerful. Um, and, and this is what he said. So this is right before he was executed. His final statement, Michael Zach. 27 years ago, I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. I did things that have hurt a lot of people, not only the victims and their families and friends, but also my own family and friends. I have woken up every single day since then filled with remorse and a wish to make my time here on earth mean something more than the worst thing I ever did. When I got to death row, I substituted drugs and alcohol for happiness and positive relationships. I'm so grateful to the guys on the row who took the time to teach me how to read and write. They changed my life forever because their love and support allowed me to have pen pals and friends all over the world. And then he named some of those and he says, I treasure you and the unconditional love you have shared with me all these years. The ability to read and write also led me to my beloved wife and soulmate, Ann Kristen. I love her for eternity. And then Michael says this, I make no excuses. I lay no blame. But how I wish that I could have a second chance to live out my days in prison and continue to do all I can to make a difference in this world. 
To all my brothers on death row, please continue to help each other. Give each other hope and peace. Keep sharing the love and acceptance that you all showed a hillbilly from Kentucky. And to all the lawyers, counselors, social workers, and volunteers who are working so hard to fix the juvenile justice and child welfare system in this country, I hope my story will inspire you to make a difference in a child's life. You have the power to save another child from my fate. Your work is so important, and I love you. To all the drug and alcohol treatment counselors and family and friends of people who, like me, suffer from addiction, never give up. I hope you understand how much you are appreciated and loved. Someone like you could have changed my life 27 years ago when I was screaming out for help. To Brother Dale and Susan, God bless you, and thank you for being such a blessing to me. To to Linda, Dawn, Stacy, Jessica, Amanda, and Diana. Thank you for everything you've done for me all these years. You fought for me until my last breath, and I love you. And then listen to this. Listen to this. His last line. And finally, to Governor DeSantis and the Clemency Board, I love you. I forgive you. I pray for you. Michael Zach. Those were his final words. Um before he was executed. And it, it, you know, it's a reminder that um, the no one's defending what he did, not even Michael, but we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done, as my brother Brian Stevenson says so often. And the death penalty doesn't heal the wounds of violence. It just creates new wounds. Violence is the disease, not the cure. Killing is the problem, not the solution. So pray for us, those of you listening around the world, uh, that we would join um, the majority of the countries of the world and abolish the death penalty, find alternative forms of of justice and for, you know, of of um you know, showing that murder is wrong without actually mirroring the crime itself by taking another life. So um, as we, you know, dive into this week, I, we, we remember um, all of those who are victims of murder and violence. Um, we also are praying for our country, you know, and we're we're asking President Biden uh, to fulfill his promise and his commitment to ending the death penalty by, get this, right? demolishing the federal execution chamber because just as states execute the federal government in our country also has an execution chamber that we're thankfully not using right now but we're we're asking president biden to kind of put a period on the end of the sentence to abolish and demolish to tear down the federal execution chamber in Terre Haute Indiana which is designed for one purpose and one purpose only which is to kill human beings. So we we can do better than killing to show that killing is wrong. And we're asking President Biden to do that. So you can join us, you know, at Death Penalty Action as we um, petition President Biden and as we join the coalitions in each state that are working to abolish the death penalty. And, you know, this week this flows right into what I've been writing about, you know, in um, uh, th- this book, Rethinking Life. And there's a whole section about America's exceptional violence. And there's a lot of talk about American exceptionalism. And by that, many people think, you know, imply and believe that America 
is a, an exceptional, um, special beacon of hope and light to the world that we are an exemplary model of democracy that some even believe that America has a, a messianic uh, role to play in the eschaton and <laughs> that's kind of a heresy not kind of but is a heresy uh that you know that we've we've challenged over and over you know this idea of christian nationalism or you know uh, america replacing jesus as a messianic force in the world but you know i want to take a different angle on this exceptionalism that um you know america uh, has a, a, an addiction to violence, and it's it goes back to the origins of our country. Um, even as as many in our country this week are remembering Christopher Columbus, uh, one of the things that we have seen is uh, truth telling about what Columbus really did. In many places in the United States, rather than celebrating Columbus Day as a national holiday, are celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, and, you know, while I'm thankful for this land we call America, it's important not to romanticize our national history. Um, many have pointed out that, you know, Columbus and the, the Spanish conquerors approached Native Americans when they arrived on, on this land uh, and they read aloud what has been become known as the requirement. Right. Um, it came to be called the requirement. And it went like this. I'm going to this is it. This is what the, the the conquistadors read to native people i implore you to recognize the church as a lady and in the name of the pope take the king as lord of this land and obey his mandates if you do not do it i tell you that with the help of god i will enter powerfully against you all i will make war everywhere and in every way that i can i will subject you to the yoke and obedience to the church and to his majesty i will take your women and children and make them slaves the deaths and injuries that you will receive from here on will be your own fault and not that of his majesty nor of the gentlemen that accompany me Ooh. So, you know, the, the 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 truth of history is that um, this, the conquest of these lands that we now call the United States of America, um, it, it was um, a, a brutal, a brutal massacre of the population here. I and mean, there were terrible things that Columbus did that now we now know of. And one of his... Um, you know, famous lines um, was that Native Americans, listen to this, this is Christopher Columbus, Native Americans are so naive and so free with their possessions that no one who has not witnessed this would believe it. He says, when you ask them for something they have, they never say no. To the contrary, they offer to share with everyone, with anyone. They would make fine servants with 50 men we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. I mean, this is Christopher Columbus saying the Native Americans are so kind and so uh, uh, generous that it'll only take 50 people to make them our slaves and do whatever we want with them. So in our 
common prayer book, we say this, that, you know, our history is different from the history told by nations and empires. Our heroes are not the pioneers of colonialism and capitalism like Columbus and Rockefeller, but the our heroes as followers of Jesus are the pioneers of compassion. Uh, folks like Mother Teresa and St. Francis and Oscar Romero, our holy days are different from the holidays of empire and pop culture and the dominatrix of power. So we need new heroes. We need new holy days and holidays. We, we, we celebrate a different story and narrative than the narrative of our nations and empire. So uh, that's, as we think about um, this experiment we call America, we think of the, the violence done to Native Americans. But uh, one of the other kind of buried parts of our history in America uh, that I, I talk about um, in this section of rethinking life is our, our history of lynching of what we did to African-Americans and this and others. There were other folks that were uh, uh, victims of racial terror as well. Uh, but it's so important that this also relates to the death penalty, that where executions are happening today is precisely where lynchings were happening a hundred years ago. Um, as my friend Brian Stevenson says that that uh, lynching is the uh, or the the death penalty is the direct descendant of lynching um, and racial terror. We still still see a disproportionate number of people of color and especially African Americans on death row. And uh, uh, when it comes to executions, over a third of executions are African-Americans, even though they uh, make up about 12 percent of our population. They're half of the population of those on death row. Um, so uh, as we you know, I, I even at me growing up as I grew up in East Tennessee, just a few hours from where I was raised, um, there was a lynching in 1917 in Dyersburg, Tennessee. I mean, there were lynchings all over Tennessee and all over the South. But in this particular one, um, a man named Lation Scott was tortured with a blazing hot poker, iron poker, for more than three hours. Folks gouged his eyes out. They shoved the poker, the hot iron poker, down his throat. And they press the iron over his body. I know this is, you know, gruesome, but it, it it it's a part of our history. He, this man, Mr. Scott, was castrated, and he was burnt alive over a fire. This was not ISIS in Iraq, right? These were folks in the Bible Belt. Um, many of these lynchings happened after church. They happened um, by people who were going to church on Sunday morning, white folks that would then uh, be responsible for this racial terror and for, um, I mean, actually setting up uh, picnics and taking photographs with the corpses of folks who were victims of, of lynching. Uh, uh, there were folks that cut off parts of their body and took it home as a souvenir. Um, they sent postcards to their family. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, it was a sick display of racial uh, of racism, a public spectacle. 
thousands sometimes showed up to um, watch these lynchings. And um, uh, James Cone and so many other folks have documented this, showing that, it, I mean, it was more like a circus or a carnival than a murder. Um, kids were dismissed early from school so that they could go watch. And um, it, it, I mean, it just curls your stomach. And yet this, you know, is a part of American history, the, the history that many people would like to bury right now. Uh, some, you know, over now we know that there's over 4,000 of these lynchings that have been documented by groups like, uh, especially the Equal Justice Initiative has done the, the best documentation we have of 4,084 lynchings. Um, and not a single white person was convicted of murder. Um as we think of these lynchings that happen, one of the things that Brian Stevenson and the EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, has done is they've taken us out to the sites where people were uh, lynched. And we, we've gathered the dirt on the ground and put it in jars. If you go down to the museum there, uh, the Legacy Museum and the, the uh, Peace and Justice Memorial, you can see these hundreds of jars of dirt that have been gathered where people's lives were, where, where they were murdered. So this, this idea, you know, that th this lynching is a part of our history. Um, two thirds of those, you know, being executed right now are, are um, African-Americans that um, as we, we, um, as as we look at the the actually the beginning of the executions, two thirds of folks being executed were African American. Um, two thirds, right? Listen to that. Uh, most of the folks who are being executed were African American because we moved from lynching black folks to legal executions. And many of the folks who were being executed um, in like the 1930s, 1950s um, were accused of sexual impropriety or even just dating a white person. There were things that were death worthy crimes like uh, capital crimes for black folks that were not even crimes for white folks at all. So as we look at that history, that still, we've got to tell the truth about it, right? And even as we look beyond that, you know, Martin Luther King um, called America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Uh, those are big words that you don't see those on many MLK memorials. <laughs> but part of it is that we've tried to uh, create a mythology um, and, and uh, a way of remembering history that erases these parts that we are ashamed of. But that history is there and the truth will set us free. So um, as we, we think about the United States right now, we're still addicted to violence. Um, we, we are one of the only uh, industrialized countries in the world that continues to use the death penalty. When it comes to the death penalty, um, uh, uh, most of the countries of the world have, have uh, abolished it. There's just a handful of countries that continue to execute. And the United States is always in the top 10, usually in the top five for the most executions in the world. As we, you know, think of, um, 
gun violence. I mean, we have more guns than people in the United States. We're leading the world in gun deaths. We're producing nine and a half million guns every single year, over 26,000 guns a day, one gun every three seconds. This violence that goes all the way back to our roots. And and, and as, as we think of um, the bombs, you know, the, the big guns, like there's just a handful of countries, I think it's nine countries now that have nuclear weapons. And 96% of the weapons of the world are owned by two countries, the U.S. and Russia. And we are the only country that has ever dropped those bombs on civilian populations. We did it twice in one week in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So as we, as, as we think about American exceptionalism, one of the ways that we are exceptional is in the violence that we have participated in. This is not just a thing of the past, but in 2016, we dropped 26,000 bombs and Obama was president. Uh, our military budget gets increased all the time. Um, Obama raised Bush's budget. Trump raised Obama's budget. Uh uh, yeah, now Biden raised Trump's budget, right? So we've got this addiction to violence. We now have uh, over 50,000 Hiroshima bombs. That's our capacity, over 50,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs. You start to go like, how many times do we need to blow up the world, right? <laughs> and you start to go, as Jesus blessed the peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. What does it look like to be a peacemaker in America? What does it look like to be a peacemaker in whatever country you are in that you're listening from? So uh, we need to be a force for life. We need to be a part of the resistance. Those of us who claim to follow Jesus should be the biggest enemies of death the biggest resistors of war, those who uh, stand in the way of violence in every iteration it has. So let's do it, y'all. Let's do it. The good news is that those of us who follow Jesus have an allegiance that runs deeper than ethnicity and nationality. Uh, you know, this language of being born again means that we, we 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 love beyond the people of our own country. We love beyond our biology. And I am so glad that the Bible does not say, for God so loved America. It says, for God so loved the world. My friend Bernice King, the daughter of Martin Luther King, she says, Christ is not American. The church is global. Our neighbors are all of humanity. The national anthem is not a gospel song. <laughs> Come on, Dr. Bernice. So let's do it, y'all. Let's be peacemakers. Let's challenge. Let's tell the truth about history. Let's heal the wounds of colonization and, 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 uh, um, and, and slavery, let's build a def, a better future. And part of that is telling the truth about the past. Thanks for joining me, y'all. I'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. 
You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.